Hello. Hey, Max. Welcome to Machine Learning. Um, oh. I, I don't know where you're calling from, but uh, I was really interested when I saw your, listened to your lecture on the TED Talks where you uh, talked about the bionic arm. Uh, you showed how um, when you, you had him move the hand back and forth, and I guess apparently in the past that's caused a, a signal that crushed the egg. So he had a little egg in his hand and he was moving his hand back and forth and it crushed. Right. Um, that was really kind of a major breakthrough. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your background in bionics and uh, kind of that uh, major breakthrough you had there in uh, and bionics. Sure. So my uh, background is in electronics uh, uh, engineering. So that's what I did my bachelor's. And then I work a couple of years for the industry, like automation and manufacturing. But then I decided that I wanted to do more, uh, something more scientific. So then I moved to Sweden where I did the master's in complex adaptive systems. So I was interested in um, you know, artificial intelligence and uh, neural nets and uh, stochastic optimizations and chaos theory and that kind of stuff. Um, so then there I got more into say algorithms and that kind of things. Um, and then I knew I wanted to work on technology and, and something related to electronics, but I also wanted to work on something that had a, a purpose or, or that felt more rewarding uh, than just manufacturing stuff or manufacturing stuff. Um, so I decided that medicine will be, applications of engineering in medicine will be a good thing for me. Um, and at the time I had a, a friend who knew that I was searching for something like that and he was in a scientific conference and, and listened to a talk of um, uh, Professor Rika Bronemark, whose um, father, uh, P.I. Bronemark, also a professor in Gothenburg University, discovered osseointegration in the 50s. And osseointegration basically means that if you put titanium into bone, the bone cells grow directly on titanium and you don't have fibrous encapsulation and that allows you to have a very good mechanical attachment. So that is as opposed to having a socket attaching a, a prosthetic to the extremity. So, so the standard way in which you will attach a, a prosthetic limb to the body is with a socket. And that basically compresses the stump to, to hold the weight of the prosthesis in place. And instead of doing that, what you could do is use source integration. So you have this implant inside the bone, and then you basically create a, an extension of the skeleton, and then you can attach the prosthesis there. So that was kind of the, the state of the art uh, of that technology when I when I was finishing my master's uh, degree. So then I, I reached out to, to the company that was doing that. And I said, well, would you like to move this beyond mechanics and you know do more, more robotics? And they were interested. So th then the, um, um, the idea was to have the mechanical attachment of the prosthesis directly to the skeleton. And then for control purposes, 
to implant electrodes in the nerves and muscles in the in the stump so we can extract information for control and then tell the prosthesis what to do and also close the loop with um, artificial sensors in the prosthesis to measure interactions with the environment and then stimulate the nerves that were severed by the amputation to provide sensory feedback. Um, so, so the you know the breakthrough, as, as you said from the videos, is that conventional prosthesis uh, in the upper limbs, at least, because in the lower limbs is a different story. In the upper limb, they will use electrodes on the surface of the skin to pick up the electrical activity of muscles when they contract and then drive an action of the prosthesis. So if you lose your arm above the elbow, then you basically have biceps and triceps. And then what you could do is that if you put an electrode in the biceps and another one in the triceps, every time you contract the biceps, that electrode will pick up the activity of that contraction. And then you can use that signal to command the prosthesis to close. And then the opposite action will be to command the prosthesis to open when you contract the triceps. And what you see in the video um, is that if you have these electrodes on the surface of the skin, it's a, it's a high impedance interface and it's very susceptible to motion artifacts. So if the person moves too fast, you, it, as soon as you have a slight you know, displacement of the electrode or lift off of the electrode, you generate this artifact that, that is interpreted by the prosthesis as a command and therefore you're likely to crash or release whatever you are holding in the hand. So you can move very fast because you have that issue. Another issue is that the signals that you pick up from the muscles are very small and therefore you need a lot of gain on your amplifiers. And that means that you can also amplify a lot of electromagnetic interference around it. So if you enter in a room where the just the power line, the electromagnetic interference from the power lines in the room is too strong, you, that might activate wow. the prosthesis. Um, something that happens often to patients is with induction, induction stops. Um, if you get close to those, that will activate the prosthesis. Or there are also these magnetic sensors in shops that uh, check that you know you're not stealing anything. So those are producing a, an electromagnetic field that if you cross it with the prosthesis, it might cause the prosthesis to activate. So there, there are a lot of cases where the control is not very reliable. And that, mm. you know, is something that you don't think much about, but if you rely on a prosthesis to, to do stuff and, and sometimes it does things without you intending to, to do so, that can be very, very frustrating. Um, and then if you, and yeah, and it's like in, the, in your video, uh, he, he, uh, had the egg and if he tried to move his arm too much uh, originally it just crushed the egg so uh, you can imagine like uh, uh, the frustration that would be if he'd made any sudden movements if he's holding a you know a, a can or something and he made a sudden right. movement maybe it crushed the can you know right so that translates to patients just not using the prosthesis to handle delicate objects or or they don't trust the prosthesis to handle certain things um, and then what ends up happening is that you have these prostheses that, that tend to be relatively expensive and, and it's only useful for a limited range of tasks. 
And it's also only useful in a certain space. So the prosthesis can work very well between your waist and your shoulders. But if you lift in an above elbow amputation, if you raise your prosthesis higher than the shoulder level, the activation of the shoulder muscles, it's it's quite strong because those are big muscles. So those, those will the activation of those muscles will be picked up by the electrodes further down on the biceps and triceps. And then you can't control the prosthesis anymore. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we also show a video where the patient is catching stuff yeah. above his head because that, that will be almost impossible to do with conventional technology. Um, and, you know, these kind of things is maybe better. They're maybe better understood by patients who have these prosthesis who know that they, you know, they, they cannot do that. Uh, whether for, you know, if you have your both arms for you, that seems like rather trivial, uh, but that's something that is not possible. First of all, the socket will physically constrain the movement. So it will be hard for you to reach that, to put the arm in that, um, that high, in that level, and then controlling the prosthesis, then it will be, you know, extremely hard. Yeah. And, and how did you solve the problem with the electromagnetic interference uh, where the device was so sensitive to different electromagnetic uh, uh, forces? The, um, the way you solve that is by implanting the electrodes. And this idea of implanting the electrodes to have a better, when I say better, is, is more reliable um, and with higher working range. Um, prosthetic control or higher resolution, as, as I will say. This idea is known since the 60s, 70s. So people tried this with implanted electrodes. In in Canada, a patient was implanted in the 70s with, uh, with electrodes, and they report very good control. But the issue they had at the time was that they implant the electrodes in the muscles, and then they have the wire going through the skin percutaneously to a connector that was sitting just outside the skin. And what happened is that after a few months, the percutaneous part got infected and then they had to cut the, the wire. They retracted the leads. So that patient lived the rest of his life with implanted electrodes that were great for controlling the prosthesis, but they couldn't use it because they didn't have a way to communicate between what's inside of the body and the prosthesis that is outside. And the way we solved that problem was with a titanium implant that is also integrated. So we already have this percutaneous interface that is stable because you have the mechanical stability with the bone and then the skin seals with the bone and the bone seals with titanium via also integration. And that's, that's your natural barriers, if you wish. Um, and this technology provided the, the key aspect that allows to also implant electrodes in the nerves and muscles that we can use for control and sensory feedback, and then get those wires um, through the titanium implant. Uh, so basically we, we with fit through connectors. So we use the titanium implant for, for skeletal attachment as a conduit of information, as a USB port to the human body, um, if you wish. And, and that was basically the, the main difference with the work we've done uh, here um, in comparison to what's done in the rest of the world that because we have this interface, it allows the patient to use this technology in their daily life without me and a group of you know engineers going behind the patients, making sure that everything is, is fine and, and it's safe. 
That is really interesting. So what was the AI part of the uh, interface? Is, is, does it have a, uh, does it have a neural net uh, interface that's communicating with the signal processing of the nerves? It depends how many degrees of freedoms you have, right? So, so what you see as electrical activity in the muscles or in the nerves are basically spikes of um, action potentials. And those, if you, if you have one muscle driving one action of the prosthesis, then you don't need any fancy algorithms. You basically just make a one-to-one mapping, right? You can take the, uh, a feature, the, say the, the mean absolute value of that signal, and then use it to drive the prosthesis. However, if you have more muscles as, as in the transradial level, and even at the transhumeral level, we have done that. Uh, we ask the patient to do different movements of the phantom hand. So say for a person who lost the arm above the elbow, we ask them to say open and close the hand, rotate it in both directions, so prosopination, and then um, wrist extension and flexion. And what we can do is, by placing electrodes in all the available muscles, so that the two head of the biceps and the three head of the triceps, if they're available, the coracobrachialis, whatever we can find in there, then it turns out that the patterns of electrical activation are different depending on which movement you're trying to do. And then you basically use machine learning to decode or to the pattern recognition. So you see this the ensemble of electrical activity and you assign that to a particular movement. And then, so so you use a, a prosthesis or a virtual reality environment and tell the prosthesis, okay, try uh, the patient, sorry. Try to do those movements. The patient follow the instructions. That's your ground truth. So you know what the patient is trying to do. You see the patterns of activity that are related to, oh. to that movement. And then, you know, the, in the field, we have tried pretty much everything, neural nets, support vector machines, linear discriminant analysis, SV, you know, uh, you name it, KNN. Have, have you tried Bozeman? Nope, not myself. Okay. Well, that was the, the uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, Bozeman, uh, that's George Hinton. He he claims that uh, everything can be solved by uh, the Bozeman machine or, or the R Bozeman. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. So go ahead and tell me what you were, what you discovered. Uh, well, so so it, well, it turns out that you know pretty much any algorithm works for doing this kind of this level of the coding, um, and then it comes down to the reliability of those signals, right? Because once you train your algorithm to recognize certain patterns, if you use implanted electrodes, those signals will change very little. So something that when we published the first study on this technology, it was a science translation and medicine paper in 2014. Um, we also show that if you train a classifier today and then you bring the patient in a month and then three months later and you use exactly the same classifier without any retraining, the performance is very similar. Um, and that attests wow. to the stability of the signals. Whether if you do that with uh, surface electrodes, you, it's likely that it's, it's going to be worse because the position of the electrode is not going to be exactly the same, and then you'll have this, all these other um, variables. So that's an advantage of having. So you can use machine learning. But is that, I had a question on that. Did, uh, so if, you, if the reliability of the signal is uh, very stable, 
is that also true across multiple people? So in other words, if you train, let's say 10 people and then the network uh, uh, is fairly generalized to those 10 people, can you apply that to 20 other people with, uh, with relatively predictable results? So maybe, but practically it makes very little difference because it takes you, you know, a few minutes to train it and then you can use it for several days. So um, I know we're always, so, so it's in machine learning, you always try to have a, a general kind of, or, or train train it in a general way so you can apply it everywhere. And and there are circumstances or applications where that's worth doing it. In this case, I don't think that's a real concern because you know it takes you a couple of minutes okay. to train the thing and then it just works well for you. Um, but let me let me clarify. So, so machine learning is you know it's been used in this field for for quite some time, and there are uh, there's a lot of papers I published on myself on using machine learning to decode motor volition using surface electrodes. And nowadays there is a couple of companies who commercialize systems with surface electrodes, um, and they work relatively okay. I think most of those patients are are happy. And then it comes down to, you know, uh, if we talk about bionics, so it's related, you know, back in the days, bionics meant the electronic design inspired of biological futures. Uh, nowadays, I think most of the people understand bionics as the combination of, of biology and electronics. And you can have that integration between the man and machine at the different levels. So having a socket for attachment and superficies electrodes for control is certain level of integration. You're certainly using neural information that you pick up from muscles to drive the control of the prosthesis. Um, and then you can have a more intimate integration if you implant the electrodes and then something we, we do and, and few groups in the world do is you can rearrange the anatomy, the internal anatomy with nerve transfers. Um, this is something developed at um, the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago now called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab that's called target muscle renervation. So you take a nerve that has no purpose because it was severed due to the amputation and then you reconnect it to a muscle that also has no functional purpose because there's no joint for that muscle to actuate. So so a simple example, say the biceps, the biceps has two heads. And if you have an amputation above the elbow, you don't have an elbow to actuate. So then those two muscles are functional from the viewpoint that they get activated by a neural impulse, but they don't actuate any joint. So what you could do is take a nerve that is um, severed there with a neuroma. So the median nerve is the, the nerve that allows you to control the, the thumb and the index on the middle finger, and then take that nerve and connect it to one of the head of the biceps. So you, the biceps have their own innervation or their own nerves connected to it. So you can cut the, the nerve that is connected to it, which is the, the same one for both heads. And in, and in that point where the original or the native nerve was located, you can suture the, the other nerve. And what happened is that these nerves will grow, this, the new nerve will grow into the muscle. So then when the patient is thinking about flexing those three fingers or closing the hand, that muscle will activate. And then you have one head of the biceps that works regularly as, as for elbow flexion when you try to do it. And the other head of the biceps uh, 
works when you try to close the hand. And there you multiply or you increase the number of signals that you have for control by one. And then you can use other muscles and so on to get more signals. And there are other surgical techniques that allow you to do that, whether where you do a muscle graph um, into into the nerves that were that were severed, and then you split those into different fascicles, and that's called um, regenerative peripheral nerve interfaces that were developed by the University of Michigan. So there are, there are a few surgical techniques that allow you to, to extract more information because the signals in the nerves are very tiny. So they're in the order of micro volts. Um, and then when you put it into the muscle, then you can reach a couple of millivolts. So then it's, it's a lot more manageable sizes. So, so you use basically muscles as biological amplifiers. So say once you start modifying the anatomy to extract more information, and then you can put electrodes inside, that's a different level of integration between the man and machine. And that's kind of like at the level that we're working. Um, and there are advantages and disadvantages. If you have a non-invasive system, you have certain control. Uh, the reliability is not as high as with implanted electrodes. With implanted electrodes, you will get more reliable system, a higher control resolution. You also get the advantage of provide sensory feedback. But the drawback is that you need a surgery. And, and not all patients are willing to go through a surgery. So there are, there are different systems um, out there that you can use to connect the prosthesis to the, to the body. Um, that's really interesting. I had a question um, as it relates to the millivolts you were talking about. Um, is the body so when you we look at nerves, uh, there's a, there's a potassium and then there's sodium pumps. Basically, it creates these uh, uh, small uh, currents and. Uh, are you talking about interfacing to those small currents in terms of the nerve? So you just treat the nerve kind of like a electrical conduit. And so as it passes electric impulses, uh, those electrical impulses become inputs to the neurons uh, or artificial neurons that you have in your control center. And then based on uh, the inputs pattern that you're receiving, uh, it then causes some sort of output that relates to uh, a particular uh, signal that goes out to the bionic that says, okay, uh, close your hand, open your fingers. Um, I did notice uh, on, the, on the video that there was some interfaces that were actually on the hand itself where you could click certain things. And if you wanted the finger, just the index finger to move instead of the whole hand to move. Uh, it seemed like he was able to control it that way. Or have you gotten beyond that now where you're saying, well, we got more degrees of freedom now and we can actually, without having to touch the device, uh, allow him to do really fine things like pick up a, a pencil. Yeah, so, so it's exactly as you describe it. You, you, there, are, there are electric signals traveling in the nerves and those multiply when they get to the muscle. Um, so it's, it's harder to pick them up at the nerve because of their size. So they're very weak. They're a little bit stronger in the muscles, not super strong, but stronger. And then you basically try to work out with the biology, the biology that is left or the anatomy that is left, right? So if you have muscles, you try to pick those uh, signals from there. If your only options are nerves, then you try to use most donor muscles to amplify that. But you can also put electrodes directly into the nerve. So we, 
we have the, we you know we do everything um, and you basically look at those signals and they try to translate that into movement by using these um, pattern recognition systems or you can use also you can also use mathematical models and then it comes down to how many movements you want to restore and it's also possible to restore by the hardware that is available um, so at this point we are the first patient that was implanted with this technology that we call um, neuromusculoskeletal interface because it's connected to the nerves, muscles, and, and skeleton. The first patient, you know, there, there was no additional nerve transfers done or, or other um, more fancy reconstruction of the stump. So he has basically control of, uh, of one degree of freedom that is very reliable. And what's been quite interesting is to see the expectations from researchers versus the expectations of patients, right? So when I started in this field, I wanted to have finger control and fine control and, and rich sensor feedback and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and then I did, and I have a video on YouTube where I have finger control of a hand and you can do that for a, for a demo purpose is, is relatively easy. Actually um, you, you take an, an conventional fit forward artificial neural network and that will do the job. Uh, and it works for the demo, but then it's not super reliable. And, and, you know, if these things are not very reliable, patients won't use it. So then I realized that reliability was an important thing. So then I dropped the idea of going very complex. And then instead of that, going to say one degree of freedom, very reliable. And that's what we did first. Hmm. And then if you, you know, if you talk with this first patient who has had the system implanted for over seven years now, um, I said, well, you know, we're trying these new algorithms. We can do this. So now he has a wrist rotator. So we're able to, to extract additional information to provide him rotation of the wrist and sensations and so on. And, and he is like, oh, you know, it's all this very cool. But uh, for him, just having that one degree of freedom that's very reliable, that it works when he's going out in his snow scooter in, in the middle of nowhere, because he's from the north of Sweden. So it's a lot of, you know, countryside uh, to get lost there and knowing that the hand will not get stuck on this, this snowmobile or, or he'll have an accident that then gets more that gets complicated because of his prosthesis use that that freedom of going out in the nature but also taking any job he feels like like doing that's that's you know what's more important for him so so one thing is the <laughs> what we try to do and the expectation of patients but of course that is one person, and and now that we're developing more sophisticated systems than new patients, they, you know, they they want more. So I think the we moving the bar every time uh, more. And so going back to your question, what is possible to do? We have a patient where we can decode some finger movement at that level, which is quite exciting. And this kind of like new stuff we haven't published yet, so it's still on on the uh, preliminary results. But I think we will be able to have uh, finger control in a person who has lost the arm above the elbow, which means that we are we are really mixing a lot of uh, engineering and surgical techniques to make that um, possible. I think that's uh, amazing, you know, because uh, uh, now just you you talked about the current moving from the head and the the tail of the bicep to the uh, controlling uh, the controller. 
But what about sensation? Is there any tactile feedback where you can send uh, a current back along the nerve that the brain then might be able to detect as as uh, some sort of sensation? Yeah, that's the other nice thing that we have in our system because we have this connection um, that is reliable between the prosthesis and the implanted electrodes. We also place electrodes in the nerves. And then there is a very nice feature of the brain that it basically sees information uh, considering, you know, at least a couple of things. So one of them is how that information is delivered, meaning the, the neural code. Uh, and the other one is which pathways that inc- that information is arriving. So which which nerves are sending that information to the brain. So we, you know, we feel because we have biological sensors through all, all over our, our body. And when you touch something, say with your hand, there are those sensors are activated and then sends neural impulses on the nerve up to the brain. And then your brain makes the conscious experience of uh, touch. So if you connect to the same nerve that that biological sensor used to be connected and you stimulate it electrically, then the brain will receive that information and make that experience of touch perceived in the location where the missing hand was, which now spatially is occupied by the prosthesis. So the sensation comes from a location that is intuitive for the patient. The, the patient doesn't even need to think about it. You know, you don't, if you touch something, you don't need to think about, I'm gonna feel now, you just you just feel. It arises in consciousness as, as soon as it happens, unless you're very distracted. Um, so, so we have that effect. And um, so the patients are capable to tell when they have made contact with an object, even if they're not looking at it and how strongly they are grabbing it. This is to say, oh, it's, it's really it's really cool, and this works right away, right? So, so as soon as we we have the electrode in and we stimulate, first time we send an electrical impulse, uh, the patients are like, oh yeah, I feel that you're, you know, I feel that sensation on my missing hand in in space, or where the phantom will be, and and that has been quite consistent. Now the quality of the sensation is not as rich as as the sensations that you will have when an intact hand. Um, and that's something important to to recognize. And and it's going to be very hard to we that we match that quality because we have a bunch of so at least four um, this called mechanoreceptors, so biological sensors that activate um, differentially depending on which stage of of touch you are. So if you are you're making an indentation of your releasing and some of them, they stay activated through the whole time. Um, and those conduct information using different fibers up to the brain. And if we were to naively replicate the way this communication works, we will need to interface to all these different fibers and stimulate them differentially. And we don't have yet a neural interface that can do that. So that's the, that's the main challenge, I will say, in neural engineering creating a, a high resolution neural interface that allows you to communicate with at, at that level of resolution. So to, to make it as you know as rich as as, as a human sensation or as, as natural as a human sensation. Is that needed? That's a different question. For functional purposes, that's probably not needed if you think about, you know, um, but yeah. yeah. Right. One degree of freedom. Yeah. 
Well, and I, I was just, uh, uh, I was just thinking while you were saying that, uh, that, that neural interface, um, you know, the, it, because you're, you're just talking about one nerve that connects to the bicep and then you, you're looking at all these other neural interfaces that you would have to integrate through. And, uh, so there would be have to be some way that you could almost self-assemble that thing inside of the person so it's connecting to the proper nerve pathways so you're not going through a hundred surgeries. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of practical it's a lot of practical problems on, on getting this through. So and anybody who has work on implantable devices, you know, for, for instance, the, one of the major issues with implantable devices are connectors. Connectors are a pain. It's not the sexiest thing to you know uh, to talk about, but uh, is 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 not what draw most of the media and attention to the field. But connectors are you know one of the biggest issues because if you have an electrode, uh, if you want to stimulate electrically, you need a piece of metal which will be your electrode, and that needs to go to some electronics. And those electronics are not biocompatible, meaning that they are toxic if you are just left them. Uh, exposed to the body and that means that you have to encapsulate them hmm. so what you normally do is you put them inside of a, a titanium in, in case and that's hermetically sealed so it's laser welded so it's like perfectly sealed and then you have what's called fit through connectors so they're allowed to have electrical communication but nothing else passes through and those are normally you know a, a millimeter say say a small one will be a millimeter um, plus minus um, a little bit and and then if you want to have a high resolution interface, you will need to have thousands of those, and then you just don't have a space. So that very quickly explodes on on dimensions, uh, and therefore that's you know so that so that's one of the fundamental challenges we have on neural engineering. And then you can have other approaches like optogenetics, for instance, where you could use light instead, which I think uh, solves that problem of having a lot of feature connectors where instead of having all those connectors, you have say one fiber optic where you can modulate in frequency and then selectively stimulate different fibers that were um, genetically re-engineered to respond to different wavelengths of, mm-hmm. uh, of light. But uh, you know that's, that's a research thing is for that you will need to introduce the the genetic change with the virus and that's complicated in the nervous system or in the peripheral. Um, so there are, there are challenges with all this uh, technology. So that's, that's where we are. So if you, if you look at the neural engineering field, uh, uh, trying to find, you've probably seen Elon Musk's uh, neural link approach where they're mostly doing it in the brain. So their approach there is to have these very tiny and malleable um, electrodes that are, that are so flexible that you need to, specialized robot to do the insertion um for amputations for people with amputations you i think it will be an unnecessary risk to go to the brain because you already have you you have all the information that you need in the periphery it's already naturally filtered and so on you know you don't need to mess up with the brain and if something goes wrong in the brain then you know you, you might end up losing more than you 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 will gain uh, but for other patients with, say, a high spinal cord injury, then uh, uh, interfacing the brain might be the only solution. So you have different technologies for different parts. Yeah. 
Well, uh, uh, Max, our time's up, but uh, I enjoyed this. Um, and and um, I one thing I was interested in, have you done any study on uh, neurons on silicon? Have you ever, if you heard of that technology or, or looked at how they did it? Like, for example, they, they had a neuron uh, I think it was rat neurons on a silicon wa- uh, wafer, and and this and the yeah. neurons can survive. That's what's survive amazing is they survive on the silicon, and they interface directly with the neuron. But they they uh, had it doing things like flying a plane and things like that. You know, so you have this kind of this uh, bridge between the biological and the electrical, like you were saying, that isn't toxic to the biological yeah i think there's a lot of uh, research on on that and and people have tried to make them grow into nanotubes and and so on and they they seem to like the environment um it's it's it's, you know it's all very interesting stuff the issue is when you try to really go translational and use it in humans uh and that's that's you know kind of the the stuff that i face so you, so you, there's regulatory stuff you need to do a bunch of tests uh, the issue would say nanotubes is that if they break they might go to places you don't want them to go and the regulatory as, as soon as you start doing something nano and with materials that are not widely used then you have to go through a lot of testing for good reasons um and then there is when the you know they said the devil is in the details that when you start getting down to the practicalities is where a lot of these ideas might might breakdown but i mean it's exciting and and i'm i'm just hoping to see uh in, in the coming year some you know nature paper that reveals a neural interface that will solve all these problems well i i saw a man uh i remember the first time i saw someone walking with bionics i know you're you're working with you know uh arm and shoulder prosthetics but uh, prosthesis, but I saw this man and he was walking at the bionic uh, was amazing because it had a, it looked like uh, it looked like it was moving. So it wasn't just like a, uh, that as he was walking, he was having to adjust his uh, gait with his, his uh, natural leg, but it looked like a natural motion and the bionic seemed to be, responding to uh the motion that he was in and uh that was just really i wanted to follow him around and watch that was that with a prosthesis or with an exoskeleton or uh it was okay it looked like a prosthesis yeah but it wasn't the one the kind that have uh it uh where it's metal and it's yeah 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 you know into a curve it looked like it had actually an ankle and right, it was right. it was adjusting the more, ankle yeah more anthropomorphic the yeah. yeah and then it was yeah more anthropomorphic and, and that natural motion uh, it didn't even it because it was such a natural motion it almost seemed as if the prosthetic wasn't there you know and so you you, you kind of like forget that he had a prosthetic and you're watching the the motion to say right, it looked right. like natural motion I'm sure that I'm sure that that's kind of like the goal of all the bionics is to get that natural motion and 
and that usability back to where well you know people like have natural. different goals but i mean certainly our goal is to um to eliminate this ability if you want to say it uh, boldly like that so we we want to restore function and i'm not necessarily married with a with an anthropomorphic solution it i think it really depends we see that uh, i think you know a lot of our patients they enjoy showing off uh, a bionic arm that doesn't necessarily use a silicon cover that is the same color of their skin they sometimes they like to have a transparent glove where you can actually see that the hand is robotic um, but but there's other people that will that would like to go more for a for a less um, you know less robotic <laughs> look uh, but yeah so we, we you know we we try to do restoration of function um, and then there are others interested on the augmentation of of function so a stronger human someone that can run faster and jump higher and so on mm-hmm. which yeah, which I, I think you know, it's that's it's an great. interesting, it's it's a challenge for sure. Um, that's not something I'm particularly interested. Mostly because not because it's wrong to to try to do the the other thing. Is mostly because I see so many problems that need a solution when it comes to disabilities mm. that I will rather use my time solving those than and augmented a human that doesn't need to be augmented. I mean, I think we're fine with the speed that we have and, and how high we jump. Um, but, uh, but you know, they're there. And I, I noticed that, I noticed in your, at what you said earlier, that uh, that one degree of freedom was, uh, and for seven years was satisfactory. And that to me tells me that uh, the bionic approach for, prosthetics is is uh going to be a a future you know if you get that level of usability and satisfaction just with one degree of freedom uh you know that's a big jump forward right let's let's keep in mind that this is a unilateral amputation right so so this patient still has a a fully functional hand Uh, i i don't think as a one degree of freedom is enough for a bilateral amputation um so, so, it, so it really depends on the person, okay. right? I, I think, and I, and I think we will, we will definitely increase the, increase the number of degrees of freedom, and we will have a, a hand that is that is relatively functional. Um, I, I think we will, we will get there, but I think at the, if, if we get some the same functionality, you know, okay. in, in dexterity as a as a person with with intact hands. Uh, then I think is there where I will shift my attention to other. But we're already working, so we we're using similar technologies to to rehabilitate patients after a stroke or nerve injuries, and and also to um, relieve from phantom limb pain. So we're trying to reactivate the the neural nets that lose their job with the amputation, if if you wish um, to say it colloquially. So um, it's it's a, it's an interesting field. So I, so I, so I think you know I like bionics because. Um, you mix a lot of different stuff. So there's electronics and computer science. I mean, machine learning is obviously, I mean, you know, it's, it's everywhere uh, for good reasons. I mean, it's a great tool to, to help you solving problems. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, And uh, you sharing the information. Good luck on the light uh, neural interface that, that's the really was uh, intriguing to hear. Right. That you, you thank you a lot. And uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah.
Take care.